Open your Bibles to James chapter 5, and I want to begin this morning simply by reading our passage of focus. James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, them, condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. There's no question as you hear that and read that, this is one of the strongest denunciations of any group of people that you will find anywhere in the New Testament, maybe in all of Scripture. The language is stern. The attitude and the outlook is bleak. And it's very clear who James is addressing in the passage. He simply calls them the rich. The rich. And so you might hear a passage like this and you might conclude that this is a denunciation of the idea of money. The idea of wealth. Just a, just a condemnation of anyone who would earn or possess or keep or grow in their wealth. This is a kind of ancient expression, you might think, of class warfare where James is denouncing people simply because they have gained an outward advantage. They have gained outward success. But if you were to come to that conclusion, you clearly have not read the passage very carefully. Because it's clear that James's focus is not on the money itself, but on the people who possess it. it. It is not the money so much as the means by which it was acquired and its use. Those are his primary focus. He's focused, we might say, on the ungodly rich, the self-absorbed rich, the self-indulgent rich. And he's taking aim at those who have gotten their money through basically unjust means. They have used it for unjust purposes and unrighteous purposes. It is focused, we might say, on those who are infected with a love of money, or as Ephesians 5 says, because they have greed in their hearts, they have become idolaters. They, they have bowed down to the idol of money. Now, we recognize the Scripture doesn't condemn wealth in and of itself. Many uh, Bible teachers have pointed out through the years that the Scripture is full of examples of wealthy people. Abraham, Job, Joseph, David, other men in the Old Testament, Barnabas, Aquila, Priscilla, of course, in the New Testament, Cornelius, Joanna. So many examples of godly and righteous people throughout the Scripture were people who possessed money. But... The Scripture is equally clear that it is sinful to allow money to control you. That there are many sins which money can lead to, many sinful ways to use money. There are ungodly uses of money. So it's not outward success per se, the earning of money per se that concerns James here. It's the heart issues that are exposed through your wealth. As I reference James, excuse me, 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the money itself, it's the love of money. It's the pursuit of money, the acquisition of money, the desire for money that, that, that cause people to run into so many temptations and so many problems. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, it is because of the love of money that they pierce themselves through with many sorrows or many pains. 
As uh, Solomon himself says, with the increase of wealth comes increased sorrow. Money, in other words, brings out so much evil in the weakness of our flesh, it exposes sins that may have laid hidden in our hearts had we not had access to the resources through which to express them. It exposes so much sin that's within us. It testifies against us in so many ways. It bears witness about what's in our heart and what is in our souls. It tells the secrets of our hearts. When we actually find ourselves with access to money or we find ourselves with opportunities to make money, it is in those times that make, excuse me, that say so much about us. In the words of James here, he actually pictures your money speaking. If you are consumed with the love of money, James actually pictures your money testifying against you. In verse 3, he says, your corroded savings are evidence against you. Or in verse 4, the wages you withhold from your employees are crying out against you. And that money, that wealth, those possessions will become witnesses against you in the end. The way you handle your wealth says so much about you. And it will literally stand as a witness against you in the day of judgment if you're consumed with a love of money. Now, of course, what James is saying in all of this is nothing (coughs) that was unique to him. Jesus himself had taught the very same thing in Matthew chapter 6, right? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. You can hear the echoes of James's language in the words of Jesus, or more like, likely the, the echoes of Jesus' words in James's language. You can hear the, the discussion of rust and moth and the corroding of all these treasures. He is no doubt heavily influenced by the words of his half-brother Jesus, and he understands very well that principle that where your treasure is there your heart will be also. So wherever you are laying up treasure is telling, it's indicating where your heart is, it's testifying to where your heart is. Your money talks. The question is, what does it say about you? What will it say about you on the day of judgment? James wants you to stop and think about that. Come now, he says here, beginning of verse One, come now, sort of same thing he said back in verse 13, chapter 4, sort of a rhetorical way to grab your attention, to call you to pay attention, to listen up. Uh, Let me tell you, he says, listen up to what I have to say, you rich. And by the way, he's not specifically addressing, I don't think, anyone in the congregations. He doesn't have anyone in mind. He's really just talking to the rich as a class and specifically picturing them in their wealth, which is used in a particularly ungodly way. Certainly there were those among the rich who would not have been consumed with a love of money, who were not taken so in by their possessions, those who've taken the blessings of God and given them and not perverted them to their own ends. But what his message here is, is delivered to those who are in the majority, those who have not dealt well with their success. And his words to them are, to say the least, harsh. Weep, howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. His words are harsh to them. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming on you. There is no promise of 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 recovery. There is no hope, just certain misery, vivid language, not a whimpering cry, not a shed tear. This is loud howling. You could translate it 
burst out into tears by howling with grief. That's the way the Greek could be rendered. This is language used to people who have lost all hope. It's used to people who lost loved ones. It's pictured of people who have had friends and family die. They're weeping like the sisters of Lazarus when they buried him in the tomb. They were howling and weeping because of their pain in their heart. Loud screeches, shrieking with misery, outbursts of utter despair, crying out because you have come to a terrible, terrible tragedy and you are gripped by nothing but despair. Now, what James is picturing here is most likely not the end for a believer. This kind of hopelessness is not what you would expect for a believer. It is everything that is described throughout all the Scripture for the life and the judgment of an unbeliever. But I believe what he's doing here is he's presenting to us this sort of generic call to the rich and telling us what their end is going to be, lest perhaps we ourselves might fall into the snare and the trap of these rich people, lest we ourselves might be deceived by the advent of our riches. Someone told me when I was very young, one of the issues with the rich is that they are so often self-proclaimed theologians. There's an assumption that goes on with so many rich, and the assumption is that they are where they are because they have been more godly, more righteous, more pure, more faithful than everyone else, and so their wealth and their riches are simply a result of their greater worth or their greater uh, usefulness or whatever it is within God's kingdom. That is so often the prideful assumption of what they think their money says about them. Well, James is saying, you need to take a close look because your money is talking, but it might be saying something very different than what you think it's saying. So he pictures these people who are, who are going to be slapped in the face. They're going to be struck by these miseries, these future miseries. And he's warning them because they never stopped in this life, their life of relative ease and comfort. They never stopped in this life to really think about what does their wealth and their use of wealth say about them. By the way, when James is picking up this language, as I said, he's not breaking new ground. This is This is language that came out of the Old Testament prophets who repeatedly gave these kinds of warnings to the wealthy. Isaiah 5.8, for example, says, Woe to those who join house to house and land to land. Building large and beautiful houses, he says, you will be left desolate. So he pictures these people who are just constantly expanding, constantly growing in their lifestyle, constantly constantly adding to their empire and their fortunes and their land and their houses. Jeremiah 22, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious rooms. Who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Amos 5.11, therefore, because you've trampled on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you've built houses out of hewn stone. Thus says the Lord, a God of hosts, in all the squares there shall be wailing, or your courtyards, really, in your courtyards there will be wailing, in all the streets they shall say, woe, or alas. Alas, Amos three five eight three. Excuse me, Amos eight three. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day. Says the Lord, so many dead bodies everywhere they are thrown. Silence. Hear this, you who trampled on the needy, 
who bring down the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain and the Sabbath so that we can offer wheat for sale, that we may make an ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. So here are people who are literally sitting in the temple. They're sitting in a worship service and they can't even get their mind off of their business. They're just thinking, when will this be over so I can go out and make another trade and do another deal and expand my kingdom even more? Malachi 3.5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be swift witness against you and your sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress hired workers in their wages, he says. And we could just go on and on and on. This is familiar territory if you know anything about your Old Testament. So James is not breaking new ground when he comes out with this strong, strong denunciation. The question is this, what is it that prompts all of this? What is it that leads to all of this harsh language against the rich, whether it's from the Old Testament or whether it's from James or whatever? What is it that leads to this kind of denunciation? We've already said it's not the money itself. The early church came to that conclusion, unfortunately, and led to a monastic movement where people ran out and took vows of poverty because somehow they thought that that was more virtuous. That was the mistake of the monastic movement, beginning to think that money itself was the problem, that somehow there was a virtue in poverty. Somehow, somehow running into the desert or into a monastery would make you free from these very things. That's not the answer. Because the issues are in your heart, not, not in your pocketbook. So what is it that brings such strong denunciation? Well, James basically outlines here for us four ways that your wealth will testify against you on the day of judgment if you have heart issues with the love of money. Four evidences that money matters too much to you and that you are serving it rather than serving God. Jesus himself said you can't serve two masters. You'll hate the one. You'll resent the one and serve the other, he says. Or you'll despise one and cling to the other. You can't serve God and money, he says. Well, James is calling us And he's calling you to examine yourself to see that your money is a witness against you. That your money may be your true master and not God. And four ways that this wealth will testify against you on the day of judgment. The first is in verses 1 to 3. And that is the fact that you hoard your wealth. You hoard it. You just choose to sinfully stockpile it. At the end of verse 3, he basically summarizes here the, the sin. You laid up treasure in the last days. You heaped it up. You hoarded it. As opposed to what? As opposed to using it. Using it the way the Lord designed it to be used. Using it the way the Lord commanded it to be used. Using it in a way that brings glory to His name. Using it in ways to advance His kingdom. As opposed to using what the Lord has given to you, you've chosen to stockpile what the Lord has given to you. And there are all kinds of ways that the Lord wants us to use His resources. There's obviously... The, the provision for our families, the Lord says, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel, right? First Timothy chapter 5. So we understand that there is, to a reasonable level, uh, a need for us to provide for our families, to provide shelter and clothing and food and education and all of those things. We understand those things. We understand that there's even a need uh, for, uh, for us to support the work of the Lord, whether it is obviously within the local church, uh, he tells us we ought to be supporting the work of the Lord. We ought to be supporting as ministers. We ought to be supporting as missionaries. 
We understand that there's even uses of our resources in the aid of the poor and giving to those who are in need. In fact, John says, if you, having possession of something, see your brother in need and close your heart to him, how in the world, he says, could the love of God dwell within you? There are all kinds of ways that God would want your money to be used. But instead of doing all of that, you are hoarding it. You're stockpiling it. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. Your wealth, your opportunities have come from Him. And you need to be a good steward of them. And so when He entrusts something to you, when He entrusts riches or wealth or land or houses or businesses or whatever, He gives it to you to use for His purposes. You understand that, right? You understand you are not the owner of what you may be legally entitled to. You are the steward. You are the steward. And He gives it to you so that you put it to use. You remember there, Jesus was talking about the end times in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 10. And He tells a parable near the end of that to talk about the final judgment, about a master who gave various sums of money to his servants. He gave one ten talents, which a talent was a sum of money. He gave one, excuse me, he gave one five talents. He gave one two talents. And then he gave one one talent. And the one who received the one talent foolishly went and buried it in the ground, basically hoarded it, Until the Lord came and required it of him. And when he came, he tried to give it back to the Lord. And the Lord rebuked him, telling him he should have put it to use. He should have invested it so that, he says, upon my return, I could receive what is mine plus the proceeds. Plus the proceeds. God gives us whatever He gives us in order to put it to His uses. So the Lord entrusts funds to you. He doesn't give it to you. It's a stewardship and He expects you to use it. But these that James is talking about, they didn't do that. They hoarded. They laid it up, he says, in the last day. And the most obvious reason why people would do this is simply for the sake of security. They're fearful They're fearful of the future. Perhaps some catastrophe would come. They're fearful that some great level of uh, strain will come upon them and they would lose the life of luxury that they've become used to. So they begin to stockpile their money for that that sort of coming day. Now don't get me wrong. James, I don't think here, is against wise savings. In fact, the proverb tells us, instructs the sluggard, Proverbs chapter 6, go to the ant, consider her ways and be wise. Having no chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Or Proverbs 21, 20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. So I don't think James is trying to contradict those verses of Scripture. Scripture emphasizes savings and the importance of having savings. But it's important to note this. When Scripture talks about savings, it always assumes that it comes with a desire for work. In other words, it's a rainy day fund, not a retirement fund. It's a rainy day fund, not a fund that is set aside so that you can indulge on one hand in slothfulness or the other hand, indulgent consumption. It's a savings that will get you through until you can find some other work or a savings that results from a content life so that you aren't constantly consuming everything that comes through your hands You spend less than you take in. That is always the emphasis in the Scripture 
when it comes to savings. But the Bible doesn't celebrate savings for savings' sake. Simply put, because you have a hundred thousand, a million, five million, whatever your individual goal is in the bank, you have it there, maybe you think that you have security. Maybe you think that it says something about your intelligence or your worth or your importance. Maybe it makes you feel like you have a sense of standing. But the Bible says something very different. It doesn't celebrate that kind of savings for savings' sake. It doesn't celebrate that kind of hoarding away with no place of righteousness. Now you might say, well, I'm a little unclear what you're saying, Pastor. I mean, I understand you're saying that you can save, and I understand you're saying that you shouldn't hoard, but where is the line? I mean, how do you, how do you really understand what, what is a proper savings and, and what crosses the line? Well, I mean, I would quickly admit everyone's situation is different, but I like a definition that I read this week. Hoarding is basically wealth without God. Hoarding is basically wealth without God. It's a view of your wealth as if God didn't exist. As if God isn't your provider. As if everything you have came by your own means and by your own ingenuity. As if somehow, if you didn't have that bank account, you would be completely without any hope or anything because God doesn't exist. Or as if you wouldn't give an account, as if the things that were given to you are not given to you by God and they belong to God. As if somehow you weren't accountable for how you use them. Hoarding is viewing your wealth as if that's all that there is. As if the future is entirely dependent on you to provide for you, to secure you, to simply please you. Hoarding is viewing your wealth as if there's no purpose for it. Or imagining that the primary purpose why God gave you the money that you have is for you rather than for Him. See, when you believe that God will be there, always with you, then it frees you up to be able to make investments in His work. When you believe that God is there with you, that that He will stand with you, it gives you the security you need to invest beyond just the future years, to invest into eternity. James addresses the foolish people here, picturing them particularly in the temporary nature of their wealth. Three forms. First of all, wealth that rotted. We might say this is, this is perhaps produce or grain. He simply says here, your riches are rotted. And riches is a very general word, but the word rotted is very specific. It always refers to perishable goods. And so most commentators understand this to be primarily referring to stored up produce, which in these days, agrarian societies, would have been a common way for people to hoard their wealth. It's reminiscent of the man in Luke 12, you remember, who we're told by Jesus This parable, a man whose land produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, quote, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Unquote. So people would store up grain, this perishable product, like, like today people might store up whatever sort of perishables may be there, 
So instead of sharing it, instead of giving it, instead of donating it, even instead of investing it or trading it, they just hoarded it. And James reminds them of, of the reality of the rotting nature of this method, the tendency to stockpile things that decay or deteriorate or depreciate. I remember one lady I knew who stockpiled what she thought was valuable cookware. She had cabinets full of this stuff that she had collected, this sort of name brand cookware that she was convinced would be sold one day at a really handsome profit. But she never envisioned a day when the internet would come and people would sell and trade all over the world the very things that she had thought she collected that were so rare, the stuff she paid for by the time she passed away was really worth a fraction of what she originally gave for it. And it just sat there, collecting rust. So this isn't just general decay. It's just deterioration. It's just depreciation. It's just price deflation. There are all kinds of ways that whatever you're stockpiling could lose its value and not really accomplish Anything that you are hoping for, James wants you to know there are forces working against you, temporal forces, natural forces. There are, there are forces that come from, from rot and decay. There are forces that come from economics and deflation. There are forces that come from catastrophe. And then James mentioned, secondly, your clothing, your garments, which are moth-eaten, which is really another way that people hoarded wealth, particularly in these days, because the rich would like to display their wealth. You see this throughout Scripture. They would display their wealth by dressing in fine linen and fine clothing, oftentimes embroidered with silver or gold into the garments. And they would actually somehow believe that these would be passed down as heirlooms to future generations. Until, of course, moths came and hatched their larvae into these garments and literally ate the garments. And the idea is you spend so much on this expensive clothing and yet all you're doing is feeding a useless worm. I've been through the collection and distribution of the belongings of someone who's passed away. And I still distinctly remember the, I guess, grief of emptying their closet, of of just taking loads and loads of clothing either to be dumped or to be distributed for pennies on the dollar, realizing that most of it had not been worn in years. And yet we can do that. We can get so enamored with whatever it is we are pursuing in terms of fashion and presentation and we just pour so much money into this stuff that is just eventually going to be thrown out or eaten or whatever it is. Stuff you hardly wear stuff that does nothing for anybody. And then James finally mentions your gold and your silver, which are rusting or corroding. It's fascinating that he mentions this because if you know anything about silver and gold, it doesn't rust. It doesn't corrode. It's one of its, it's one of its unique qualities that makes it so valuable is it is not given to corrosion. Yet James mentions that your gold and your silver are corroded. I don't think he's just making a mistake here. I don't think he is unaware of the chemical uh, properties of these precious metals. What he's doing is he's applying strong language to remind you that your money will become one day suddenly worthless. It doesn't matter if you keep it in gold coins or paper bills or online bank accounts. All of it is subject to the sudden devaluation of the day of judgment. And all of it is suddenly decayed in one way or another. What a sad thing when you think about all that could 
have been done with it. 1 Peter 1.7 speaks about gold that perishes even though it's refined by fire. I mean, it can be the most secure kind of, kind of uh, place that you could imagine and yet no matter what it is, no matter how strong and in, uh, a savings you might think it is, it'll be burned up one day. In fact, in verse 3, he says this rust and this, or this corrosion actually sort of personifies and comes to life and begins to testify against you and becomes like a fire itself on the day of judgment that consumes you. The corrosion, he says, will be evidence against you. It will eat your flesh like a fire. So this money that you yourself had placed so much focus on and so much faith in that you believed that you were actually taking care of, it actually rises up against you like a rebel mob and begins to hurl accusations against you and lights you up like a fire and consumes your flesh, James says. What a vivid picture of, of the horrors on the day of judgment and the shock for the rich. It would be so sad that day when the rich who thought that they had accumulated wealth, wealth that said something about them, wealth that talked about how important they are, how smart they are, how wise they are, how influential they are, and yet they find themselves weeping and howling because their money actually rises up to say about them how self-absorbed they are, how uncaring they are, how insecure they are, how fearful and cowering they are, how proud they are. It will testify against you. It'll testify against you. So what's the alternative? Luke 16, you remember, remember Jesus told the parable about a steward who would, it would appear by most accounts had wasted so much of his master's money. In fact, the title of the parable is the, is the unfaithful or the unjust steward. He appeared to be wasting his Lord's money by doing favors for people. He would go out and someone owed his Lord a uh, hundred bushels. He would give them a, a bill that gave them a freedom from their debt if they would write out a check for 50. Or if, if they would write out a portion, 80, he would forgive their debt of a hundred. But in the end, the Lord commended him saying he had actually been quite shrewd. In fact, he tells us that the sons of this world are all very shrewd. They figure out ways to leverage their access to capital in order to get gains for themselves. They actually figure out ways to use what is not theirs to get gains for themselves. And so he tells us the application of all this. Make friends for yourselves by the means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails or when it's gone... They will receive you into eternal dwellings. What's he saying? He's saying that you have a temporary passing resource that is briefly in your hands, which if you're smart, you could use to create for yourself eternal riches that will never go away. That's what he's saying. And so all I know is I want to be as shrewd as I can, not so that I can hoard all I can, but so that I can use all that I can for the sake of God's kingdom. I want to invest what I have where I can get the best return with the greatest eternal impacts. As John Wesley said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. I still think that is a great summary of kingdom attitudes towards money. So it would be foolish to just hoard all your money because you're just fearful of what might happen as if the Lord wouldn't be there with you. It would be foolish to hoard all your money rather than finding creative, productive ways to maximize its impact for the Lord's glory, for the Lord's people, for the Lord's kingdom. It'd be foolish. Well, secondly, James tells us our wealth will testify against us in another way on the day of judgment. Verse 4, it'll testify if you've withheld wages. 
If you withhold fair and just and rightful wages from workers, it will not escape the notice of God. It will testify against you. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, literally cut your fields. They didn't have lawns these days. They didn't mow the way that we would think about that word today. But these are the harvesters. You'll see that at the end of the verse. It talks about the harvesters. He says, the laborers of the wages who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So instead of generously distributing and caring for your workers, you have hoarded your money, selfishly, indulgently consumed it. Even when you had excess to spare, you didn't bless those who had so labored alongside of you in the production of it. James actually pictures the rich here keeping back wages from their workers by fraud, by artificial excuses, by gimmicks, by duplicity or whatever, withholding money from workers. Maybe they knew they couldn't keep it forever. Maybe they thought they could just hold on to it for a few extra months or put it to good use and make a little more for themselves. But the thing is, their laborers, they survived on day-to-day or week-to-week Income. That was a general economy of the day. You had those few people who owned property who could hire people to work their land, but most people, the majority of people, were either on one hand slaves or on the other hand they were day laborers. They didn't put a lot of money away. They literally depended on getting paid at the end of each day in order to survive. And the rich would defraud these workers by not paying them or not paying them their full due at the time. And the workers would go home with heavy hearts because of the desperate state of their financial affairs, and they would cry out to the Lord of hosts. And what James is telling us here is that God hears all of those prayers, and He knows the source of their grief. And it's as if the rich never stopped to really ponder and consider the plight of those who are in their care. I mean, basically, here, here you have wealthy who have more than what they need, way more than what they need in some cases, and the laborers who barely had enough to survive. And that situation had no impact on their heart or their actions. I understand in our economy, it doesn't work quite so straightforward. It isn't a day's Uh, wages at the end of a day's work. In modern situations, you have corporations, you have accounts payable, accounts receivable, and structured contracts, and all that other kind of stuff that sometimes uh, create forces that are out of your control. But the point in all of this is simply sensitivity to the needs of your employees. It's recognizing the precarious situation that they are so often in. They're not wealthy. They often don't have the money to pay beyond the next set of bills. And if they can't pay those bills, they will incur penalties and fees. And those fees will pile up and they will snowball against them and they will create even greater burdens against them. They will weigh them down. A national employment website recently did a poll and found that 78% of workers in America have less than one paycheck in their savings. Four out of five people have less than one paycheck in their savings. And so if they don't get paid, if you have them come out and do some work for you and you delay that payment, they don't get paid And the next time the bill comes around, they can't pay that, adding to their debt, which adds to their interest payments, which adds to their monthly burdens and monthly expenses, which leads to higher cost of living, which leads to deeper financial holes, which require more and more time for them to climb out of, all 
because you didn't pay. For you, it might be a headache in in bookkeeping. For them, sometimes it's a life-altering phenomenon. So James's point is this. The Lord sees all that. He knows all that, and he hears their cries. And by the fact that, that they're crying out to him, it probably implies that those who are crying out are his children. They're his people. They're his sons and his daughters. And you can imagine the pain that comes into a father's heart when he sees his children mistreated, when he sees his, his children being treated unfairly or, or being dealt with by a double standard, when people are uh, overly criticizing them or maximizing their faults and minimizing their accomplishments, when people are, are dealing ungraciously with them. No parent likes to see their children treated that way, and God certainly doesn't like to see His children treated that way. And so when these people lift up their cries to the Lord of hosts, He hears them. He hears them. And if you're an employer and the money you have comes from him and he's entrusted it to you with the expectation that you would distribute it in the way that he desires, in the way that honors him, in the way that pleases him, and then you turn around and you withhold uh, adequate and fair wages from those that are entrusted to you in your care, do you think that will escape his notice? It'll testify against you, he says. It'll stand against you on the day of judgment and it will accuse you. It'll expose where your heart is. It'll expose who you serve. It'll expose what you think about your wealth and what you think about God. Well, very quickly, James gives us a third way that wealth's going to testify against you on the day of judgment. In verse 5, he says, You live lavish lives. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts on the day of slaughter. He pictures you like cattle or like hogs who are just greedily eating up everything that they can that's put in front of them, not realizing that they are only making themselves out to be more of a dramatic slaughter on the day of their demise. James says, you've chosen to live your high-flying, self-indulgent lifestyle. You've accumulated for yourself luxuries and lands and money and houses, not in the order to invest it in others or use it for God's glory, but to accumulate it to indulge yourself. You have fattened yourself, not others. More interested in your own comfort than in God's causes. And so your lavish lifestyle is going to speak against you. Your money talks. It may not be saying what you think it's saying. They thought all the riches and all the houses and all the fine clothes were indications of how important they were. How much God was happy with them. But in the end... In the final day, it will only tell how self-consumed, all consumed with themselves. If you're wealthy, you might excuse yourself because you pay your bills, you pay your workers, you give to the church. You might, you might even pay your employees well. Then you think you can escape because your luxurious lifestyle is going to expose you. It's the Lord's money. You need to use it for His purposes. And you use it for ways that don't glorify Him, but glorify you. I read this week the story, once again, I read it a while back, the story of John D. Rockefeller, who I know has been so demonized through all the years by so many people. But he was a very religious man. And of course, He, of course, cornered the market on oil coming out of the Civil War right as the Industrial Revolution began to happen. First of all, seizing the opportunity for kerosene, but doing what so few people did back then, realizing that all of the byproduct, I think it was something like 80% of the oil that was being... um, processed in those days was spilled into the rivers because people didn't think about all the ways it could be used. 
And so Rockefeller figured out how to extract from a barrel of oil not only kerosene for lamps, but tar for roads, um, even chewing gum to some extent. I'm not sure how. But he became very productive, and he actually was credited with almost single-handedly transforming America from a dark continent into a light continent. Because he, for the first time ever, was bringing the cost of kerosene down to the place where the common man, not just the wealthy, could afford it. And through that, he became, of course, enormously rich. Soon, at one point, he was controlling 90% of the oil market just as the advent of automobiles came into the market. He owned the oil fields, the refineries, the pipelines, the tracks that the trains ran on. He owned all that stuff, and he was making enormous amounts of money. He, he was personally worth 2% of the entire GDP of the country. A very wealthy man. A man who also taught Bible study every week in his local church, who faithfully gave 10% of his income all the way through his life until he was about 55 years old when he developed from the stress and the strain of his business dealings and particularly the criticism that was coming against him by so many, he developed an enormous ulcer that was bleeding out on the inside. His doctors actually told him he would die probably within a year or two out of simple internal bleeding. So he decided that if he only had a year or two, he was going to spend it trying to make as much impact as he could for the Lord. He stepped back from his business dealings and gave himself over to philanthropy at the age of 55. He ended up living till he was 85, I think, maybe 90. 35 years, I think, is how much longer he lived. And he said he came to realize that giving actually healed him. It actually healed him. It actually did away with his ulcer, made him feel so much better about himself, so much more purpose. He wound up, by the time he died, had given away half of all the money he had ever earned. He'd given it to establish seminaries and Christian colleges and schools to set up mission organizations and send missionaries all over the world to help fund various um, uh, hospitals and foundations that were aimed at providing health care for the poor. He was personally responsible for uh, building the buildings of many churches. In many cases, uh, black churches. He loved to contribute to black chur- uh, churches. He founded Spelman College here in Atlanta for the education of young black women. He was an incredibly generous man. But he realized when his life was all over that everything he had been given, he had been given for a purpose. This is really... This is really what God is desiring of you. Not that you just live a lavish life, but you understand what has been given to you has been given to you for a purpose. Rockefeller never stopped making money his whole life, but he realized that it was being made or was being given to him, not for him, but for the purposes of employing it to the Lord's kingdom. And he had a huge impact in many, many ways on our nation. So, James is warning, your luxurious lifestyle will rise up against you. It'll testify against you. It'll say things about you that you've tried to ignore. And it'll be a day of howling and weeping. And then finally, a fourth way that your wealth will testify against you on the day of judgment. You intimidate and abuse your employees. He says in verse 6, you've condemned and murdered a righteous person. He doesn't resist you. We don't have time to really develop this, but James is using legal language here, basically a legal word for convicting someone in a court of law, for accusing and sentencing them. And James says, says, you're doing this with people who are righteous. In other words, they're not guilty. You're legally convicting them, obviously unjustly convicting them by legal means. And then you are murdering them, which is probably exaggerated language for destroying them. We already read back in chapter 2, verse 6, James 
ask them this question, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? So he's picturing a wealthy class of people here who have access to legal means by which to oppress people. Probably not unlike our day when the poor have very little means to defend themselves. And so the the rich use their access to legal means to destroy or metaphorically murder the poor. And the idea is that these are innocent people. They're righteous people. They've acted maybe not perfectly in every situation, but they've acted with sincerity, with integrity. And yet the rich use every legal maneuver that they can to insulate their wealth or to hold back what is owed from an honest day's work from the poor. They use every legal maneuver they can to extract every nickel they can from the poor. In those days, virtually everything was handled by some level of court system. Even if it was the local synagogue and the, and the village elders, people would bring disputes before them. In our days, we're much more sophisticated, of course, with legal contracts and laws. But James's point is that just because you are legally justified in your actions doesn't make it right. Just because you're legally insulated just because you are legally declared by some judge or by some contract to be whole, it doesn't make it eternally right. And to punctuate the point, James points out that these righteous people, these innocent people, do not resist you. Maybe they don't resist you because they don't have the legal means to resist you, or maybe they just quietly are entrusting their situation to the Lord and to His justice. Nevertheless, your legal standing or the declaration of some judge, some earthly law, some earthly contract is not the final measure of how you will be judged. The Lord wants to know that you have dealt fairly, that you've provided honest reimbursement for the expenses and honest payment for the wages and the labor of those who are around you, that you have not leveraged your power against the poor. That you've done to them the way you would want done to you if you were in the same fragile position. So the question isn't only what you are legally bound to do. The question is what would God want you to do? What would He require of you with His funds? How would He want to provide for that worker. Your wealth says a lot about you, maybe not what you think, but in the day of judgment, it will speak loudly. And you don't want to be surprised when you hear what it says. You don't want to be surprised at that moment, shedding tears, wailing with deep remorse and regret at the squandered opportunities. The day for that is now. The day for that is now. See the potential miseries. Look ahead. Ponder what the Lord would say about how you've used your wealth and take the steps to redirect it for His glory. That's the message. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with prayer. Lord, these are uncomfortable topics to be sure. People are so sensitive when it comes to discussing issues of money. In so many ways, that just indicates our own attachment to it. Lord, we want to hear from You. We want to understand Your desires, Your purposes, how you would have us use the resources that we have because we know they've come from you. We are not the owners of our bank accounts. We are not the owners of our homes and our businesses. We're the stewards. And we humbly bow before you today, remembering that, acknowledging that, and offering 
ourselves again, asking for your help to be good stewards, to be those who are faithful with what's been given to us, entrusted to us. Lord, we're so blessed as a nation, as a church, as a people. You have given to us more than we could ever ask or imagine. You've given to us more than we need. We acknowledge that we have been tremendously blessed. Lord, may we not take it for granted, but let the way that we use our wealth say about our life and our character, who we trust and who we serve. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.